Welcome to Geared for Growth for a special bonus podcast episode. We're chatting today all things joint venture development, so small-scale joint venture developments, looking at subdivision and small-scale construction and battle axe-style developments. With episode 56 guest Luke Bailey, who's the founder of Four Tier Buyers Agents, and episode 61 guest Oliver Jackson, who's the founder of Living Property. So these guys have joined forces together to start working with their clients doing small scale developments, and we have a chat to them about all the nuances to putting these sorts of deals together from a legal point of view, understanding the roles and responsibilities of all the parties, how to actually go through the process and the due diligence, looking at town planning, what can be done on the site, interviewing builders to the end where most of the time they're selling these projects. So hopefully you get a little bit out of this. If you're interested in doing a joint venture development, these guys have got some great tips in how you can put that together. Here is Luke and Oliver. So Luke Bailey and Oliver Jackson, welcome to Geared for Growth Together. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks for having us. It's um, it's a bit of a bonus podcast that we're doing today because you guys have reached out and said that um, apart from being episodes 56 and 61 respectively on this very podcast, you've decided to sort of join together in a business. So we're kind of merging together and we're going to talk about the joint pro, uh, joint venture projects that you guys have got going on. So obviously you guys have two separate businesses and, and even in different states um, helping to advocate for people wanting to grow their portfolio with different sort of specializations that you guys have. But you've actually joined forces to do a sort of small development model style setup with everyday investors. Can you run us through how that works and what that looks like? Yeah, sure. So essentially, we do have two separate businesses. We both uh, run buyers agencies, uh, myself in Adelaide and Oliver based in Melbourne, um, but we realised there's a, there's a great opportunity for everyday investors uh, to not necessarily, you know, go down the investment property, you know, path, but actually get into, you know, small developments through joint ventures. So that's essentially what we've done is, is combine forces and, um, you know, different skill sets to work out how can we bring, you know, the average investor into a joint venture. So you guys have obviously got sort of a, a, a business joint venture, but when it comes to a property joint venture, I guess we all know a little bit about how that could potentially work. You just sort of pull your buying capacity together and you can buy different assets, um, maybe extend what you could buy um, just purely by yourself. But what, what, does the, what, what does this property venture look like? Yeah, so I guess essentially... Um, that. Yeah, go, go for it, Ollie. Um, yeah, essentially, it's um, we're getting a group of people together to to put a deal together. So we find a lot of people have, say, a bunch of cash, and then they can't get a loan for whatever reason. They can't service for the loan, and then there's a lot of people that have a good good job and they can service, but they don't have any cash to get involved in investing or in developing. So with me and Luke's uh, networks together, we can combine both kinds of people, and then everyone can get involved in the development process. 
So when it comes to the benefits of, of doing this, obviously you can pull your finances together and you've got a little bit more of a, a reach, right? And I, I think that's an opportunity for investors because when you're, you're looking at different projects and take development, for example, there's, 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 there's a point at which there's, I guess, a lot of competition within developments because everyone's sort of got enough to do, you know, a, a couple of townhouses or something like that. But once you get to that bigger level, there are less players and potentially the deals can be a little bit better. Is that sort of one of the advantages or is this really taking people that perhaps don't have any capacity to do a small development project to the point where they can get involved in something like that? Yeah, it's probably more the, the, the latter, I would say. Um, you know, it's essentially pulling people together or bringing people together that want to do a small development that may necessarily not be able to do that um, otherwise. And that, that may be because they, you know, may have some, some cash they're sitting on from, it could be from a, an original buy and hold strategy that they've refinanced and sitting on some cash, but maybe they haven't got a job and they need to team up with someone that may have the other part of the, the puzzle that they haven't got. And, and essentially someone may not have any money whatsoever, but they may have a really good paying job. And, you know, that, that, that's an opportunity where people initially think that, oh, you know, I can't do a development, I, I haven't got any money or I haven't got a job, but they actually can if they, if they understand um, how to team up with someone and do a joint venture. So let's say we've got someone who's, uh, let's, let's say, a brain surgeon on 350 grand a year. Uh, they've got no savings because they blow it all on expensive Shiraz. This is getting a little bit too close to home. Um, <laughs> just, just the Shiraz bit, not the salary or the or the uh, intelligence. <laughs> then, then you then you've got someone who is uh, a bit of a career bum, but they've come into an inheritance of a hundred thousand dollars. No bank is going to touch them. How does it work from a structuring point of view? I mean, who who is sort of getting the the loan on this development, or is there a commercial entity that goes together that the bank just kind of looks at what you're doing, what your LVR is going to be, and and that's how you sort of get assessed yeah I, I can answer this one as well so typically the, the person that has the, the borrowing capacity will be the one that holds the debt because that's from from a bank's perspective uh, that's what the bank is looking at they're looking at their serviceability and, and borrowing capacity so going back to your example that the brain surgeon who blows all their money but has a really good job they would be the one that would be holding the debt and, and they would be actually on the title, whether that's, you know, they've created a company or, or whatnot. And how it's all secured is they, obviously the, the, the brain surgeon that's on the title, they, they actually own, own the property, but the money partner that maybe inherited that hundred or, or 200,000, they would have a joint venture agreement uh, drawn up a, an actual legal agreement in place and they, there's also other avenues that they can go down, such as putting caveats on titles and things like that to secure their money. So that's essentially the, the security side of things. Yeah, because that, I guess, would be a concern. Let's say you're you know, walking along the street and someone comes up to you and says, do you want to get into development? Here's a joint venture opportunity. I mean, it, it would terrify me, right? So I'd be kind of thinking, all right, well, if I'm chucking my money in this, then how do I, how do I get linked to the outcome? So it's actually something that you would consult with, uh, I guess, a, a commercial property lawyer to set up the structure in place so it all works, given that one particular entity is taking on the debt. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. So 
you, you do need a property lawyer in this situation. Um, and look, we've got joint venture agreements and development management agreements already drawn up that, that we enter in with, with people. But essentially, the security side of things, you know, you do need a property lawyer to put caveats on properties and, and set up the structure the, the right way so everyone's protected uh, within the development. Um, and, and obviously, you know, when you're doing something like this, you're wanting to really build a relationship and obviously trust that person, you know, walking down the street, if, you know, if someone said, Hey, you want to do a, a joint venture, you, you know, you, you wouldn't want to do it that way because you haven't built I, that relationship. I, pre- I presume that's might. not your business model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not. So, but, but you are right. It's, um, you know, proper, having a good property lawyer on board from the start is definitely key. If someone does approach you wearing a koala suit and ask you to get involved in a development, I'd recommend you sort of run, run the other way. Now, Oliver, the, the typical sort of property investment model is to, is to buy a property and hold it long term. That's kind of the bread and butter property investing. But I guess what, what we're talking about here is enabling people to get involved in a, in a small development with, say, a 12-month time frame. What, what are the advantages from a, a wealth-building perspective? So we look at everyone's strategy, um, like me and Luke are both buyers agents. So if some people aren't, we don't think are fit for development because it's not for everyone, then we still go down the traditional investment property route. But the good thing about a development is in that 12 month period, you make a big chunk of cash that you can then roll over to the next development. So it's more of a lumpy kind of deal. So you're getting chunks of cash every year or two instead of uh, property development, which is a long burn. I mean, if you can do a couple of developments every couple of years and then buy an investment property and you're kind of building your asset base with a portfolio and doing developments, you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on the, the strategies of the investor, right? So you wouldn't necessarily recommend this strategy to everybody that you guys get in touch with? No, absolutely not. Luke, what Definitely sort of- for a certain kind of, like it, 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 it. Go ahead, Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying it's um a lot of people have a different risk tolerance. Like like this sort of development's not as risky as doing crazy big developing, but um it's just not for some people. So we have to assess every person. You can't make someone do something obviously just because you know, you know it's a good deal. You have to be make sure they're comfortable because you are in a relationship for that time of that development. If they're not comfortable, that's not going to be good for anyone. Of course. Yeah. Luke, what sort of developments are we talking? Are we talking townhouse developments or unit blocks or subdivision granny flats? What's your typical bread and butter development that these sort of small development syndicates are doing? Yeah. So predominantly we keep everything under, under four. So what we're doing is, uh, one into two, one into three, and one into four uh, subdivisions, and also construction of uh, single story, typically three bedroom, two bathroom, uh, single garage homes. But in some uh, situations, there might be a double garage or it could be a fourth bedroom. But it's it's really small residential subdivisions with the construction of single story uh, properties. So, you know, it, to give you an, an example, it could be a corner block, the typical corner block with an existing house on there. It's got a nice juicy backyard and you, you know, you, you cut the backyard off and you build a, a single story there and then you renovate that existing house or it could be 
maybe not a corner block where the actual driveway for the house is quite large. So you can keep that existing house and actually build one in the backyard, such as uh, Hammerhead and Battleaxe developments. Um, or it could be if the house is positioned in, 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 you know, in the wrong spot, it could be simply demolishing that house and actually splitting it into two or three street frontage blocks. So there's, I guess there's three variations, the corner block, the hammerhead, and then the knockdown is the variations of it. And, and we sort of did a bit more of a deep dive in our interview with, with you, episode 56, so check that out because, um, Luke, we, we jumped into a, a lot of the um, strategies that you've employed to grow your portfolio. When it comes to finding these particular sites, is there a lot of competition for people that are looking at it that understand the d development controls and say, look, if I can get something of a block size like this or a shape like this, then I can subdivide and, and make, a, make a killing? Is there a big competition for finding these sites? Is that part of the struggle? Yeah, it's a good question. And the, the competition in Adelaide certainly isn't as high as what it is in the, in the eastern side of Australia. But a lot of it comes down to knowledge. I mean, a lot of the sites that, that we've purchased, even vendors, real estate agents, and even the general public don't know, you know, you can subdivide it. It could be that their initial measurement uh, measured under, and we know that from past projects, we can squeeze that project through, you know, five or 10 square meters under the actual regulation. So a lot of it is actually understanding and knowing things that other people don't actually know. Um, but there is, there is a bit more competition for for that sort of type of product. Um, but the more you do, the the more confident and the better you become at it. And we buy a lot of off-market properties as well. We've got some agents that, you know, as soon as they have a development site like this, we are the first person that, that they call. And, and that's a, an advantage that it doesn't happen overnight. That just comes within time. Yeah, awesome. Now, Oliver, when it comes to this development process, obviously you've got to find the joint venture partners, you've got to organise the finance, you've got to find the site, you've got to engage whoever's doing the, the consulting work or the construction work. How, how do you guys sort of manage that process? Who does what? And, and I guess I'm talking about yourself uh, and Luke, but also the, the participants in the, in the joint venture. Yeah, there's, man, there's a lot of moving parts to the process. Um, Luke is the developer, the project manager. He's, he's been doing this for many, many years. He's the expert definitely in that field. He also has another business partner in his business, Fortia, which uh, a guy called Nathan, who is a real estate agent. So he also helps with a lot of the sourcing and the sales of the developments. And then I more look after client management and uh, deal with all the lawyers and so on. Yep. <laughs> That sounds like the, probably the worst job dealing with all of the lawyers. Um, so when it comes to, let, let's, let's take, for example, Luke, one of these battle axe style blocks. So we've got a, a, a fairly uh, deep block with a good enough frontage to put a driveway down the side, but we're going to, 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 to split it into two and build something at the back. Is the first step working with a, a town planner to get that through council? Is that something that you do? I'm just interested in the time that that takes and, and some of the costs involved. Yeah, sure. So the, the first step is initially, once we've found a site, we've done our due diligence, our feasibility, we've checked, make sure that the driveway is large enough, the block size is large enough, everything sort of meets that first criteria. Uh, we then need to get our architect and also our surveyor 
to then, or surveyors firstly, to do a site survey and come up with a, a site plan. And then from there, um, the, the surveyor and architect, who both have very, very good understanding of town planning, um, will then prepare the application to submit to council for the first stage of the development approval. So it's, it's essentially our surveyor and our architect uh, early on the piece before the engineers come into it later. Yeah. Now, with respect to the areas that you're doing these sorts of projects, and you mentioned Adelaide before, is it exclusively Adelaide that you work with? And what, what's the council like there from a development appetite point of view? Yeah, so predominantly Adelaide at the moment. We've done some things interstate, but we're just focusing on the Adelaide market at the moment. It's really good entry uh, price, entry points. So in terms of the councils, without giving exact suburbs where we do this, um, we've got three councils in total that we actually target. And it's very important to do these developments in councils that are very pro-development, as, uh, opposed to councils that, you know, are, are sort of stuck back in the 80s. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so you want to work with councils that are very pro-development that you've worked with before and that you know the um, council planners on a, I guess, more of a first-name basis. Yep. And Oliver, I understand you probably do a little bit more of the, the client-facing sort of things. Are, are there people wanting to get involved in, in projects like this with partners similar to you guys just from, I guess, a, a learning point of view? They want to understand the process to maybe go and replicate it and, and do it by themselves? Yeah, a, a lot of people want to be a developer um, and I think the best way to start is to get someone else to show you how to do it, like doing a joint venture. I mean, you know, Luke's a very busy person, but he's very, um, you know, shares his knowledge very openly with clients. Um, you know, obviously, he can't spend all day on the phone to a client and then asking questions, but it, the best way to learn is by osmosis. So if people get involved, they're going to learn. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't do one development and then go and do it myself. You want to get involved in a few because you know things go, you, you want to see things go wrong, so you know know for when it comes up the next time. Speaking of and things you have going wrong, like Luke, um, at the helm. Yep, sorry, with Luke at the helm. Yep. we got a bit of a satellite delay with you on some um, sort of you Caribbean know, island. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Luke at the helm, it's it's um, you know he knows how to judge when things go go badly. So, you know, that's the best way to learn, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking of the horror stories, I mean, people's ears have pricked up. We all like to hear these horror stories of people absolutely biffing it and in the hope that we're not one of them. What are some of the risks and some of the things that can go wrong with development projects? Yeah, there's essentially, I mean, there's a lot of different risks, but I could almost narrow it down to three main categories. The first one is the is essentially the, the the planning risk. That means you're wanting to subdivide a block. You think you can get three, and you can only get two. Um, that was that you know that might affect or well, that will affect the profit substantially. Um, so you've really got to understand the planning um, situation. But in in saying that, you always need to have a plan B. And we've we've had situations. I'll be honest, where we think we can get three, and the council has just said no. Well, you know, we can't get three on this one. So then we have to revert to a plan B. And that might be just getting two, but it might be building two bigger homes to sort of counter counter that. Uh, another risk could be a finance perspective, um, you know, a client losing their job and, and not being able to get finance and then the, the project stalls for a while. And the third risk 
I would say would be market risk, meaning that the market could change. Now we do a lot of these developments in rising markets, which does help. But if, you know, COVID-19 pops up and, and then all of a sudden, you know, the sale becomes a bit harder to sell, things like that can, can happen. So it's about just knowing those risks and, and managing them. Yeah. Let's, uh, we've done sort of the stick. Let's do more of the carrot. What sort of returns can we be looking at with these sorts of development projects? Yeah. So from a, I guess I'll, I'll look at from a profit on cost perspective. Um, so, which is what a lot of developers sort of go by. So these are obviously small projects. We're looking at somewhere between 15 and 20% profit on cost. Typically with these, small projects you won't generally get too much more than than 20 percent in some cases you will but i think there's one thing to look at the profit on cost but there's also another thing to look at as well which is risk levels and also time frames our, our time frames are around about 12 months start to finish which is um you know there might be projects out there larger townhouse developments that that might might be producing 25 to 30 percent profit on cost but the time frame could be two and a half years it could be a higher risk level. So I think it's, it's a pretty good sweet spot to aim for around about that 15 to 20. Yep. And Oliver, what sort of costs are we needing to sort of front up? I guess maybe as a group and you can maybe talk to individuals if you're having two or five or I don't know, a hundred people involved in this. What, what sort of upfront capital would someone need to be able to do one of these sort of simple subdivide, um, maybe renovate and build at the back style projects? Mate, if there was 100 people, I, I don't think I'd be involved. <laughs> um, usually it's just a couple of people, to be honest. You know, you, you, the less people, the better. Um, you know, if, if there's a group of five or six that want to get involved, that's great. So we're looking at about a 450K, 500K purchase cost for the, for the person holding the loan. And the cash in between one dollars and $200,000, yeah. depending on the size of the project. So we're looking between the $1 to $2 million development purchase, taxes, everything. Yeah. Depending on how big the project is, obviously. So they're not massive. You're not, we're not blowing out $10 million projects. Yep. And when it comes to, to people that might be interested in doing a joint venture themselves, how, how would people go about finding partners? Is it a matter of sort of canvassing the family at the barbecue or is that perhaps a recipe for disaster? Could that ruin Christmas? <laughs> Um, yeah, business and family. I'm not really sure about that one. Um, well, you start with your, I guess you start with your inner circle and work your way out, don't you? Um, start with your network you already know because it's a lot harder to get money off someone you don't know than someone you do. Yeah. And what, what typically the investors that you're working with in these particular projects, what, what attracts them to it? What are they chasing? Are, are they in a situation where they've got good cash but no sort of serviceability or are they really just chasing those sort of 15 and 20% returns? Oh, well, when yeah. the bank's giving you, is the bank even giving 1% at the moment? It's, um, <laughs> why would you have your cash in the bank? Yeah. <laughs> And Luke, when it comes to your sort of personal investing philosophy, are you sort of working on this model pretty exclusively or do you sort of select residential property as part of your strategy as well? Yeah, so I built a decent portfolio um, using the buy and hold method and, and buy, renovate and hold. But now I'm sort of more transitioning just to projects now. And, and I think it's a great way for you know people to start with the buy and hold method and then 
and then go to, you know, short-term projects. And that could be because they're wanting to, you know, retire from work or want to make large chunks of um, cash in, in a shorter period of time. So it's a really good transition period. But for me, it's it's more about projects now. And most of my focus now is, is doing these small developments. Yeah. And it seems that there's an, an appetite for property investors to get to development at some point in their, their trajectory, I suppose. Like, there's a lot of investors with maybe one or two properties that are aspirational developers. What is it that you think makes people want to actually get into a development project? And for a lot of people, are they maybe not suited to it and should stick to, to what they know with just investing in the residential property? Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I would say that not everyone is, is cut out to, to do this type of stuff. And and some people might be better off just buying and, and waiting for the market to grow. You know, it's it's not always rosy. And it's, um you know, a lot of people think property developers, they're all wealthy and it's all easy, but it really isn't. There, there are projects that you do that, um, you know, that, that you make more money than what you first anticipated. But there are also projects out there that you, you're not hitting your numbers that you first anticipated. And that can really play with people's mindsets yeah. um, that they, you know, they were assuming that they were going to make, you know, 150,000 and it's, it's only 91 or something like that. And that can really um, play with people's mindsets. So then they're not all cut out to do it. That's for sure. Yeah. Now, obviously you guys have, have got a joint venture where you're helping people to get into this, but if people are hell bent on doing it themselves, what, what what sort of people do they have to have as part of their team? Obviously, they, they need some understanding of town planning. They've got a development application to submit. They've got to get a builder involved. They've got to potentially get a land surveyor. Who, who are some of the, the key people and how is it how, how best do you find people that are experts in these little niches? Yeah, so if someone was going to do this themselves um, for the very first time, I would really say good luck because it can be, I see, I see some people that, yeah, it's went quite, you know, the, the wrong way. But in terms of if they were to do it themselves, I would say that get the most experienced architect and also surveyor that you can possibly find that has done a lot of developments in the area that you're wanting to do this development, possibly a town planner as well, depending on how big the project is. Uh, then, to then go around and, and get three to five different quotes after you've got the initial planning drawings from your architect from builders, very important to work with a, with a good builder. And essentially, um, you, you know, you need other people as well. You need a good property lawyer, conveyancer, you need a good, uh, you know, civil engineer and, and hydraulic engineer, but essentially the, the key players, if I could just say that the, the three most important, it would be architect, surveyor and builder in my opinion, uh, and maybe a town planner. Beautiful. Now, Oliver, when it comes to the end project, typically what do these joint ventures do? Do they tend to hold one of the properties with now minimal debt and sell one of them or do they hold on to the entire project? What sort of cash flow would that sort of investment look like? Give us, give us some of the, the background and the numbers. Um, a massive majority, I'd say 90% sell the whole lot. Right. Because the whole, the whole model really is around getting your cash in, pulling what you pulling the cash out, and then doing another project. Um, I personally haven't been involved with one with Luke because someone's held on to it. I'm sure he has. I'm not. He, he can probably answer that one a bit better than me. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in as well. Um, exactly what, what Ollie said, I would say 90, 95% of people sell and then repeat the process. If they had a good experience, they would be more, more than likely to, to sell. I mean, I know you've got uh, taxes and things like that you've, you've got to pay, but you know the whole idea is to just keep repeating the process. Some people do keep, go for a refinance, pull some equity out, and then um, it is a good way to build your portfolio, I, I must admit, but most people sell. Is the reason why people sell because they got such a great return, they want to just do that again and, and turn it around in another 12 months? Or is it because these areas aren't particularly selected for long-term capital growth? They're more about what can be done on the block of land and the willingness of the council to accept developments and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think, um, you know, majority of your equity is going to be made by subdividing the, the, the land and actually building and then uh, you know, realising the uplift, you, you will still get capital growth in these areas that we focus on. But I guess with the, the amount of equity that someone's created in that 12-month period, it, it doesn't really make sense to hold on to it because you, generally when you, sell a, when you sell a property, most of the time, look, in my experience, you, you get the highest amount as soon as it's finished opposed to waiting for, a, you know, two or three years or four years when, you know, those properties are now older um, and there's new properties popping onto the market. So most people, I guess, sell, realise that. And then being a joint venture as well, you know, it, it's probably easier to sell because you've got someone that's that's holding the debt or you, potentially you've got someone holding the debt that's a different party. You've got a money partner that's a different party. So, you know, the agreement initially was to, was to sell. To wind it up, yeah. And people yeah. love that new property smell. I don't know if that's a thing. I think that's only cars. I've never heard of anyone talking about a new, a new property smell. Oliver, with the market such as, as, as it is, and we're looking at the, you know 12-month development timeframes, I know Adelaide, for example, seems to be pretty free of, of COVID, but um, you know these Victorians might sneak across the border somewhere somehow. <laughs> are, are there risks with such a... I mean, it's a, not a very long development timeframe, but 12 months can be a long time in property. What, what are some of the concerns when we're in sort of a, a pandemic uh, at the moment when it comes to building prices? Are they likely to go up or down or the actual sale price? Could it get to the point where the development's not stacking because the market's tanked because of a, a spike in cases in particular suburbs? What, what are you thinking there? Man, that is a very big question that I don't think anyone start. has it. I think there's no. about six in there. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows the answers to any of those questions. <laughs> if if they do, I think they're full of it, um, mate. You just gotta you just gotta be fully diligent on your risk profile when you're doing your numbers. Um, I mean, Adelaide's not highly reliant on international migration, which is a good thing considering there's no planes coming here at the moment. There's a lot of good jobs growth. It's a good population. Um, yeah, you can't. I mean, I can't answer that question properly, to be honest. Like, no one knows the answer to that. And if yep. they if they say they do, they're they're full of shit. <laughs> when 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 I I know I asked you for a lot of crystal ball stuff, and <laughs> I know you're a clever guy, but an, an epidemiologist, you're not. Um, but when we're talking about investing in something that we're going to sell in twelve months' time, of course, you need to consider what the market's likely to do. Does that sort of factor into your due diligence that you're looking in product in you know, I guess markets where there is a reasonable demand? Do you look at days on market or vacancy rates or anything like that? Yeah, um, well, definitely. 
Yeah, go Ollie. No, you grab, you grab that one, Luke. All right. So, yeah, yeah, we, we essentially we, we are. We're, we're looking at, you know, are vacancy rates really decreasing in the area that we're developing and, and what's the supply level and, and demand like in these areas? But I guess at the end of the day, um, all of those things are great, but we can really only do our numbers and our due diligence on, on today um, and not necessarily, yeah, I mean, let, let's say we're targeting a $500,000 sale price. We can't, you know, assume that, that, you know, because the market's growing that, you know, we're going to achieve 520 or 530. We really have to do it on today's numbers and, and do that to the best of our ability. Yep. So let's say we've got uh, a barbecue or a couple of mates down at the pub once once that's available to us. And then <laughs> there's a couple of professional people and they're, they're all sort of, they've got reasonable jobs and borrowing capacity and a bit of saved money and they're wanting to put a, a development together. What, what are some of the, I guess, the, the things that they need to consider and the, and the checklists when it comes to, to putting this this structure together and finding the sites and interviewing the builders and that sort of thing. Um, I'd say first thing would be handshake agreements are no good in court. <laughs> so legal contracts as tight as you can possibly get and every aspect of the whole situation is literally the most important thing. No matter if it's your best mate or your brother, um, getting legal advice is by far the most important thing and and as that would be part of i guess the original conversation it's it's sitting down with a lawyer to say look these are the parties these are the roles and responsibilities from in from in terms of who's carrying the debt who's putting what sort of finance in and and does the contract actually say this is what the outcome will be upon completion we will sell and the debts will be settled and everyone gets their share is it is it that sort of detailed as a here's what we're agreeing to and here's what happens at the end yeah so right right at the very beginning when you're working out you know let, let's say you've got two or three people that want to do a joint venture and you, you know you've agreed that it's a great idea and you, you want to do it in the actual development agreement or joint joint venture agreement it actually explains everyone's roles uh, in the development and it could simply be uh, someone's role is just to answer it's just to answer emails because they're almost a silent partner and they just might we might have a few questions here and there and then someone else the the working partner might be to organize uh the surveyors the architects all the development applications the builder so there's the the roles are very clear at the start and it's it's super important and it's a good question that, that that you just raised that um yeah it's very very important at the start to get everything in place yep now, when we're talking 15, 20%, Oliver, you mentioned before that, you know, you're getting 1% in the bank. Uh, it sounds a little bit too good to be true. It's like those commercial property yields at, at 9%. Why, why isn't everybody doing it if we can get 20% return in 12 months? That's a very good question. Why isn't everyone doing it? Because a lot of people don't know what they're doing. Um, and, I mean, everything has a risk to it. And if you don't find the right people to get involved with, you could lose money yeah. so you really have to do your due diligence before you go into an investment like this on the person you're doing it with um yeah that's yeah 
And Luke, when it comes to making the decisions on, on what to do, that let's say the house to build at, at the back, how important is it to get that right based on sort of the demographics of, of the area? Do you sort of need to understand well, what people actually need to be built in that particular area or does it just come down to what can be done on the side and a, and a high and, highest and best use sort of equation? Yeah, good, good question. It's um, it's a combination of both. I mean, at the very start of the project, you need to work out you know, what can actually be can be built on this pro- you know on this property. Is it going to be two story, single story? But you know, ultimately, you really want to know who your target market is. You want to know who who's going to who's more than likely going to buy this property. Is it going to be a, a first home buyer? Is it you know is it uh, are the yields good enough for a, an investor to buy? Is it a, a downsizer or so you really need to know your demographics and that, and that really does change from, from suburb to suburb and your, your type of product that you build will be based on who we think the end buyer will be. And the end buyer, give an example, if it's a, a low-end purchase price, maybe around that 400000 it's more than likely going to be a first home buyer most of the time what, what we've found. But, you know, if it's a, a high-end you know, project where it might be, you know, in a more affluent suburb might be, you know, seven hundred thousand, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar purchase price. It's more than likely going to be an upgrade. It's maybe a professional family. So it's it's super important knowing this at the start of the project. Yeah, beautiful. So if people are interested in getting into a, a, a JV, what what are some of the resources they can check out uh, if they're looking to do that themselves and and how do they get in touch with you guys if they want to tap into that wisdom? Um, so resources to do it themselves, um, uh, pray and hope you get it right. <laughs> Uh, just research different developers that you feel like you could f- have a good fit with and uh, obviously talk to them, see if you get along because it is a relationship at the end of the day. They might be the best developer in the world, but if you don't get along with them as a person, it's going to be a tough ride. Yep. Um, so credentials and personality. And if you want to get in contact with us, Luke is Fortia um, and I am Living Property. There you go. And as I mentioned before, we interviewed Luke as episode 56 on the Give Growth uh, podcast and Oliver bringing up the rear with episode 61. Um, nothing to see there. Guys, thank you very much for, for sharing your wisdom today. If there's, if there's one thing, and I'll let you guys maybe scissors, paper, rock for who answers this one, which is difficult because we're on Zoom, but um, Luke's just, you know, letting himself go so he's not turning his camera on. He's obviously in his, in his COVID wear or undies or something, so just don't accidentally hit the button. But if there's, if there's one little piece of advice that you can give to, to investors that are looking at doing these small developments, what will it be? I'll, I'll jump in in, the, in my pyjamas that I'm wearing at the moment. Um, <laughs> look, ultimately, ultimately what it is, it comes down to relationships and, and doing your due diligence. So you're wanting to really team up with somebody that you really connect with uh, authentically, that um, you know you trust them as a person. And um, I think that's ultimately what it is. It comes down to, to, to trust and relationships. So I would just say do your due diligence carefully um, on the property that you're buying, but also the partner that you team up with. Beautiful, I love it. Thank you guys for sharing your wisdom today and uh, we'll, we'll see you on the next one.